Chapter Twenty Two of The Orphan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Orphan, by Clarence E. Mulford, Chapter Twenty Two, Tex Williard's Mistake. During the month which followed the picnic, things ran smoothly on the A.Y., and the rejuvenated ranch was the pride of the whole contingent, from the sheriff down to the cook. The orphan had taken charge with a determination which grew firmer with each passing day, and the new owner was delighted at the outcome of his plans. The foreman, elated and happy at his sudden shift in fortune, radiated cheerfulness and consideration. His men knew that he would not ask them to do anything which he himself feared to do, which would not have been much consolation to a timid man, since he feared nothing. But to them it meant that they had a foreman who would stick by them through fire and water, and a foreman who commands respect from his outfit is a man whose life is made easy for him. He had known too much of unkindness, harshness, to become angry at mistakes. Instead, he set diligently at work to undo them, and mistakes were rare. The very men who had once wished for his life would now fight instantly to save it. They were proud of him of the owner, the ranch, and themselves. And the proudest of all was Bill, once driver of the stage, but now a cowboy working hard and loyally under the man who had once held him up for a smoke. Visitors were numerous, and every man who called became enthusiastic about the ranch, and after he had departed marveled at the complete change in the man who was its foreman, and felt confidence in the good judgment of the sheriff. Ford Station was openly jubilant, for the town exulted in the discomfiture of the crossbar eight, and in the proof that their sheriff was right. And Ford Station chuckled at the news it heard, for the foreman of the crossbar eight had called twice at the A.Y., and was fast losing his prejudice against the orphan. Sneed had found a quiet, optimistic foreman in the place of his former enemy, and the laughter which lurked in the orphan's eyes closed the breach. He had seen the man in a new light, and when he had said his farewell at the close of his second visit, the grip of his hand was strong. As for the star sea, a trail had been worn between the two ranches, and hardly a day passed but one or more of its punchers dropped in to say a few words to their former bunkmate, and to stir up Bill. The star sea, no less than his own men, swore by the orphan. One bright morning the sheriff left for a trip to Chicago and other packing cities to arrange for future cattle shipments, and announced that he would be away for a week or two. On the night following his departure, trouble began. The ranch and bunkhouses of the crossbar eight were fired into, and when Sneed and his men had returned after a fruitless search in the dark, the foreman stared at the wall and swore. Was it the orphan again? In the absence of the sheriff, had he renewed the war? First thought cried that he had, but gradually the idea became untenable. Why should the orphan risk his splendid birth on the A.Y., his prospects now rich in promise, to work off any lingering hatred? When Sneed had shaken hands with him, he found apparent sincerity in the warm clasp. He would ride over at daylight and have the matter settled once and for all. And if satisfied that the orphan was guiltless of the outrage, he would turn his whole attention to the imitator of the former outlaw. 
The orphan was mending his saddle-girth when he saw Sneed cantering past the farthest corral. The latter's horse bore all the signs of hard riding, and he looked up inquiringly at the visitor. "'Good morning, Sneed,' he said pleasantly, arising and laying aside the saddle. "'What's up, anything?' "'Yes, I came over to find out about it,' Sneed answered. "'I hardly know how to begin. But here I'll tell it from the beginning.' and he related what had occurred, much to the wonder of the orphan. "'Now,' finished the visitor, "'I want to ask you a question, although I may be a de blank fool for doing it. But I want to get this thing thrashed out. Do you know who did it?' The foreman of the A.Y. straightened up, his eyes flashing, and then he realized that Sneed had some right to question him after what had occurred in the past. No, Sneed, I do not, he answered. But in two guesses I can name the man. Good, cried Sneed. Go ahead. Bucknell? No, he was with me in the bunkhouse, replied the foreman of the crossbar eight. It wasn't him. Go on. Tex Williard, said the orphan with decision. Tex, cried Sneed. Why? It's as plain as day, Sneed the orphan answered. He's sore at me, but lacks nerve. "'But, Thunderstation, how would he hurt you by shooting at us?' Sneed demanded impatiently. "'Oh, he would scare up a war during the sheriff's absence by throwing your suspicions on me. He reckoned you would think that I did it, get good and mad, fly off the handle, and raise H. Blank L. generally. He figured that I, according to the past, would meet you halfway and that you or some of your men might kill me. If he didn't, he reckoned that the sheriff would kick me out of this berth, that one or both of us might get killed in the argument. He could sit back and laugh to himself at how easy it was to square up old scores from a distance. It's Tex as sure as I am here, and unless Tex changes his plans and gets out of this country to blank soon, he won't be long in getting what he seems to ache for. Sneed pushed back his sombrero and smiled grimly. "'I reckon that you're right,' he replied. "'But you ain't sore at the way I asked you, are you? I had to begin somewhere, you know.' "'Sore?' rejoined his companion angrily. "'Sore? I'm so sore that I'm going out after Tex right now. And I'll get him or know the reason why, too.' "'You go back and post your men about this.' and tell them, on no account, to ride over my range for a few days, for they might get hurt before they are known. Put a couple of them to bed as soon as you get back. You need them to keep watch nights." He turned toward the corral and called to a man who was busy near it. "'Charlie, you take anybody that you want and get in a good sleep before nightfall. I will want both of you to work tonight.' "'All right. After dinner will be time enough.' Charlie replied. I'll take Lefty Lukens. The orphan went into the ranch house and returned at once with his rifle, a canteen of water, and a package of food. As he threw a saddle on his horse, Bill galloped up, waving his arms and very much excited. "'Hey, orphan!' he shouted. "'Somebody sure enough plugged some of our cows near the creek. I lost his trail at the cottonwoods.' "'All right, Bill,' replied the foreman. I'll go out and look them over. 
You take another horse and ride to the Star Sea. Tell Blake to keep watch for Tex Williard, and tell him to hold Tex for me if he sees him. Lively, Bill." Bill stared, leaped from his horse, took the saddle from its back, and was soon lost to sight in the corral. In a few minutes he galloped past his foreman and Sneed, swearing heartily. His quirt arose and fell, and soon he was lost to sight over a rise near the ranch-house. The foreman of the A.Y. rode over to Charlie. "'Charlie, in case I don't get back tonight, you and Lefty keep guard somewhere out here, and shoot any man who don't halt at your hail. If I return in the dark, I'll whistle Dixie as soon as I see the lights in the bunkhouse, and I'll keep it up so you won't mistake me. So long." Sneed and he cantered away together, and soon they parted, the former to ride toward his ranch, the latter toward the cottonwoods near the limping water and along the trail left by Bill. When near the grove, the orphan saw five dead cows, and he quickly dismounted to examine them. "'Not dead for long,' he muttered as he examined the blood on them. He leaped into his saddle and galloped through the grove. "'Now, by God, somebody pays for them,' he muttered. Here was a sudden change in things, positions had been reversed, and now he could appreciate the feelings which he had had more than once aroused in the hearts of numerous foremen. He emerged from the grove and rode rapidly along the trail left by the perpetrator, alert, grim, and angry. Soon the trail dipped beneath the waters of the creek, and he stopped and thought for a few seconds. If it was Tex, he would not have ridden toward the crossbar eight and the town, and neither would he have ridden south toward the Star Sea, nor north in the direction of the A.Y. He would seek cover for the day if he was still determined to carry on his game, and would not emerge until night covered his movements. That left him only the west along the creek, and more than that, the creek turned to the south again about five miles farther on, and flowed far too close to the ranch-houses of the Star Sea for safety. He must have left the water at the turn, and toward the turn rode the orphan, watching intently for the trail to emerge on either bank. His deductions were sound, for when he had rounded the bend of the stream, he picked up the trail where it left the water and followed it westward. The country around the bend was very wild and rough, for ravines between the hills cut seams and gashes in the plain. The underbrush was shoulder-high, and he did not know how soon he might become a target. The trail was very fresh in the soft loam of the ravines, and the broken branches and trampled leaves were still wet with sap. Soon he hobbled his horse and proceeded on foot, but to one side of and parallel with the trail. He had spent an hour in his advance, and had begun to regret having left his horse so early, when he heard the report of a gun near at hand and a bullet hissed viciously over his head as he stooped to go under a low branch. He threw up his arms, the rifle falling from his hands, pitched forward and rolled down the side of the hill and behind a fallen tree-trunk which lay against a thicket. As soon as he had regained this position, he glanced in the direction from whence the shot had come, and, finding himself screened from sight on that side, quickly jerked off his boots and planted them among the bushes, where they looked as if he had crawled in almost out of sight. That done, he crawled along the ground under the protection of the tree-trunk, and then squirmed under it 
when he pushed himself, feet first, deep into a tangled thicket and waited, colt in hand, for a sign of his enemy's approach. A quarter of an hour had passed in silence when a shot, followed by another, sounded from the hillside. After the lapse of a like interval another shot was fired, this time from the opposite direction. He saw a twig fall by the boots and heard the spat of a bullet as it hit a stone. Two more shots sounded in rapid succession, and then another long interval of silence. Half an hour passed, but he was not impatient. He most firmly believed that his man would, sooner or later, come out to examine the boots, and time was of no consequence. He wanted the man. Whoever he was, he was certainly cautious. He did not believe in taking any chances. It was almost certain that he would never leave until he had been assured that he had accomplished his purpose, for it would be most disconcerting at some future time to unexpectedly meet the man he thought he had murdered. Another shot whizzed into the place where the body should have been, according to the silent testimony of the boots. It sounded much closer to the thicket, but in the same direction of the last few shots. Then, after ten minutes of silence, a twig snapped, and directly behind the thicket in which the orphan was hidden. The foreman's nerves were tense now, his every sense was alert, for his was a most dangerous position. He quickly glanced over his shoulder into the thicket, and found that he could not penetrate the mass of leaves and branches, which reassured him. He was very glad that he had forced himself well into the cover for soon the leaves rustled and a pebble rolled not more than four feet off and in front of him, slightly at his right. More rustling, and then a head and shoulder slowly pushed past him into view. The man moved very slowly and cautiously and was crouched, his head far in advance of his waist. The orphan could see only one side of the face, the angle of the man's jaw and an ear, but that was enough for he knew the owner. Slowly and without a sound, the foreman's right hand turned at the wrist until the colt gleamed on a line with the other's heart. The searcher leaned forward and to one side, that he might better see the boots, when a sound met his ears. "'Don't move,' whispered the foreman. The prowler stiffened in his tracks, frozen to rigidity by the command. Then he slowly turned his head and looked squarely into the gun of the man he thought he had killed. "'Christ!' he cried hoarsely, starting back. "'I don't reckon you'll ever know him,' said the orphan, his voice very low and monotonous. "'Stand just as you are. Don't move. I want to talk with you.' Tex simply stared at him in pitiful helplessness and could not speak beads of perspiration standing out on his face, testifying to the agony of fear he was in. "'You're on the wrong side of the game again, Tex,' the orphan said slowly, watching the puncher narrowly, his gun steady as a rock. "'You still want to kill me, it seems. I've given you your life twice, once to your knowledge, and I told you with the sheriff that I would shoot you if you ever returned.' and still you have come back to have me do it. 
You were not satisfied to let things rest as they were." Tex did not reply, and the orphan continued, a flicker of contempt about his lips. "'You were never cast for an outlaw, Tex. If I do say it myself, it takes a clever man to live at that game, and I know, for I've been all through it. As you see, Sneed and I didn't shoot each other, for the play was too plain, too transparent. You should have ambushed one of his men, burned his corrals and slaughtered his cattle, for then he might have shot and talked later. And he might have gotten me, too, for I was unsuspecting. I don't say that I would kill an innocent man to arouse his anger if I had been put in your place. I'm only showing you where you made the mistake, where you blundered. Had you killed one of his men, it is very probable that his rage would have known no bounds, but as it was, the provocation was not great enough." Tex remained silent and unconsciously toyed at his ear. The orphan looked keenly at the movement and wondered where he had seen it before, for it was familiar. His face darkened as memory urged something forward to him out of the dark catacombs of the past, and he stilled his breathing to catch a clue to it. He saw the little ranch his father had worked so hard over to improve, and had fought hard to save, and then the picture of his dying mother came vividly before him. But still, Something avoided his searching thoughts, something barely eluded him, trembling on the edge of the then and now. He saw his father's body slowly swinging and turning in the light breeze of a perfect day, and he quivered at the nearness of what he was seeking, its proximity was tantalizing. The rope, the rope about his father's neck had been of manila fiber. He could never forget the soiled, bleached yellow streak which had led upward to eternity. And manila ropes were, at that time, a rarity in that part of the country, for rawhide and braided hair lariats had been the rule. And on the day when he had given Tex his life in the defile, he had noticed the faded yellow rope which had swung at the puncher's saddle-horn. As he strained with renewed hope to catch the elusive impression, another scene came before him. It was of three men bent over a cow, engaged in blotting out his father's brand, and instantly the face of one of them sprang into sharp definition on his mental canvas. "'To blank you!' he cried, his finger tightening on the trigger of the colt which for so many years had been his best friend. "'I know you now.' changed as you are. Now I know why you have been so determined for my death. On the day that I cut my father down, I swore that I would kill the man who had lynched him if kind fate let me find him. And I have found him. You have just five minutes to live, so make the most of it, you cowardly murderer." Tex's face went suddenly white again, and his nerve deserted him. His colt was in his hand, but oh, so useless! Should he fight to the end? A shudder ran through him at the thought, for life was so good, so precious, far too precious to waste a minute of it by dying before his time was up. Perhaps the foreman would relent, perhaps he would become so wrapped up in the memories of the years gone by as to forget just for half a second where he was. 
The watch in the orphan's hand gave him hope, for he would wait until the other glanced at it. That would be his only hope of life. The foreman's watch ticked loudly in the palm of his left hand, and the cold in his right never quivered. The first minute passed in terrifying silence, then the second, then the third, but all the time the orphan's eyes stared steadily at the man before him, gray, cruel, unblinking. "'They told me to do it! They told me to do it!' shrieked the pitiful, unnerved wreck of a man as he convulsively opened and shut his hand. "'I didn't want to do it! I swear I didn't want to do it! As God is above, I didn't want to! They made me! They made me!' he cried, his words swiftly becoming an unintelligible jumble of meaningless sounds. He stared at the black muzzle of the colt, frozen by terror, fascinated by horror and deadened by despair. The watch ticked on in maddening noise, for his every sense was now most acute, beating in upon his brain like the strokes of a hammer. Then the foreman glanced quickly at it. The gun in Texas' hand leaped up, but not quickly enough, and a spurt of smoke enveloped his face as he fell. The orphan stepped back, dropping the colt into its holster. "'The courage of despair,' he whispered. "'But I'm glad he died game,' he slowly added. Then he suddenly buried his face in his hands. "'Helen!' he cried. "'Helen! Forgive me!' End of chapter 22